I think I'll go ahead and include this and next Sabbath uh, in it uh, so that it kind of gives a little bit of a, an introduction, perhaps. And I'm going to entitle this, unless I change it by the time I'm done today, uh, Prophecy and History Fitting Some Strange Pieces Together. We have a world today where people try to ascertain many things about history. We have archaeologists combing the world, digging for signs of the past, uh, searching historical records to try to determine what has occurred in the past. And we also have people working on prophecy, trying to figure out some of the things in the Bible that seem to be... Uh, well, just not fitting with the way the world is today. And they have difficulty trying to fit it together, and they come up with some really strange-looking animals in trying to fit things together. Uh, we have Protestants who say, some of the leading prophecy experts, if you will, that America is not mentioned in prophecy. And they are looking upon one little nation in the middle of the Middle East as being the key factor in end-time prophecy. But what do you do with the major countries like Russia and China and the United States in particular? Because they don't recognize who those peoples are, and therefore, and not recognizing that, they can't see where they fit the story anywhere. So how could you possibly have the major nations of today that don't fit anywhere in what is happening today? That seems so strange. Now let's look at a brief overview of the geopolitical formation that we have in the world today. We have America touted as the last remaining superpower, Russia having met supposedly its demise, the Berlin Wall torn down, and Russia we consigned into the third world state. Now they're rising above that again, however, and China has been for centuries, even millenniums, and the Asian continent as a whole, generally not too much involved in power politics. Uh, they were back in the Ming Dynasty. They were in the days of Genghis Khan and so on. But today, over the last two or three hundred years, you haven't heard much about all those billions of people in the East, other than perhaps Britain's connection to them and... Uh, Hong Kong and some of the British protectorates that were in Asia, but the majority of the Asian peoples have been basically left out. You don't hear much about South America. They're not much of a power anywhere. You don't hear much about Africa. There's no great power there. So the power in the world we see today was basically on the continent of Europe and North America, particularly the United States. And that remains to this day. 
Now, what we see happening in the news before our very eyes has to do some way, does it not, than all of, about or with all the things God says are going to happen here in the end time. Doesn't or don't all those prophecies that God made about Israel being the sand of the sea, and yet here we have a little nation over there that the world and the Protestant world judges as Israel. That little country has about 8 million inhabitants, about 2 million of whom are of Arab extraction. And I think we've been able to show that the majority of those who are regarded by the world as Jews are probably of Edomite extraction, the Ashkenazi Jews. I say Nazi on the end on purpose. And a small population then of perhaps Sephardic or true Jews of the lineage of Christ and Judah and Isaiah, Jeremiah. I mean, what am I trying to say? Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, how do you say that is a people, the number is the sands of the sea? How does the prophetic picture of Abraham's promises and that being that Israel would be a blessing to the whole world? That Israel today over there has to depend on imports and foreign aid and loans in order to even survive. So, on a financial basis, economically, they are not a blessing to the world in any way, really. They are not a blessing to the world in military. <laughs> they threaten their neighbors. They are not a blessing to the world religiously because they're not imparting anything of value to the world. Tell me, how are they a blessing to the world? They are a bone of contention in the world, but they certainly do not fit the description of what God said would be the case with Israel in the latter days and how Israel would be dominant. So there are a lot of questions. And we see a world today where America is quickly slipping from its position of prominence as a superpower. We have had a tremendous advantage in the world on, the, on an economic basis by having the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency of the world, based mainly on using American currency or the U.S. dollar as the exchange for oil. And heretofore, all oil, or almost all oil, on earth has had to be bought by different countries with U.S. dollars since that agreement was made. The agreement included Saudi Arabia and the Arab nations, and they pledged that they would not sell oil to anyone except with U.S. dollars. Now, that has made the dollar a demand item throughout the whole world because essentially the whole world needs oil. And we have been able to print 
U.S. dollars by the trillions and have a great demand for them because people needed them to buy oil. So other currencies could have problems, but through using American dollars, they were able to buy oil. And in one sense, America has been, I guess, a mixed blessing to the whole world in that area alone. It has been the U.S. dollar that has kept international trade going, that has allowed it to reach the heights that it has and to make the world the prosperous place that it has been. Now, that U.S. dollar was backed by gold and silver until, and I won't go into all the details, that was taken away, and it was just it, the confidence and the reputation of it then that had value. Now, as we have gone further and further into debt by the trillions and are doing so very rapidly today, we have a new policy now of QE3. It's a fancy word for printing dollars, quantitative easing number, or third chapter. And this one is endless. At least $40 billion will be created by computer keyboards a month, apparently, from now on. And that's at a minimum. And they can print, based on this policy, all the dollars they want to print. At the same time, Russia, China, Brazil, Germany, Iran, many countries are now making agreements among themselves and denying the agreement of the U.S. dollar as the currency of the world and trading in their own denominations among themselves. Which means that the U.S. dollar is getting less and less needed, less and less desired, and very soon, as we print more and more, and it becomes highly inflationary, it will become worth less and less. And pretty soon, no one will want it. In which case, America and its economy and its power in the world will vanish. Now, I haven't quoted a scripture yet. I'm just talking about the things that are going on in the world. At the same time that the U.S. dollar and our reputation and any love that anyone might have felt toward us are disappearing, we also have a Muslim movement of billions of people who hate us Viciously. And we have turmoil in the Middle East of all those nations and peoples there. Just a few days ago, the Libyan ambassador was killed, our ambassador to Libya. And we didn't make a big deal out of it. In fact, our leadership even indicated that those poor people have been persecuted and it was, they should be pitied. For what they did, it could be interpreted very easily that way, and many did, rather than a strong, powerful statement against Americans being murdered, which is what traditionally our leadership would have issued. 
and then perhaps gone after the perpetrators. But we have a government right now who is, which is contrary to our history, apparently pretty much against Israel and won't even talk to their leaders at the moment, but is willing to talk to the Muslim Brotherhood, is willing to go on David Letterman, but has no time for the leaders of the nation of Israel. We have a situation shaping up in which, at the moment at least, Syria is the catalyst. And the war drums are beating very strongly about going into Iran as well, whether Israel by herself does it or whether the United States is involved. The United States seems to be trying to pull back from that. However, 30% of the oil for the world comes through the Straits of Hormuz, which is controlled by Iran. And if the Iranians shut that down as a result of an Israeli attack, if they do choose to do it on their own, the United States will immediately be drawn into it, irrevocably, because much of our oil comes through the Straits of Hormuz, and because Iran has already made it very clear that they will also attack U.S. bases, and we have them ringed around Iran. China and Russia have said that if we attack Iran, they will not take it quietly. And they have great military power. Those are the pressure points, the biggest pressure points in the world today. China and Japan arguing over some islands or North and South Korea shooting at each other <coughs> are an irritant, <coughs> but they are not the major problems. So what we have shaping up are a confrontation of the whole Muslim world against America. And if we attack some Muslims, the other powers that are just behind us militarily, Russia and China, saying they will retaliate. So the pressure is building. Okay? Now, these are things that are on even mainstream media. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm just setting the stage here of what is going on in the world and which we can see if we watch the news. More and more it's coming into focus. The problems in this nation, even the mainstream media are having trouble ignoring anymore and they're trying to hold it off until after the elections. But there are a lot of things going on that are leading to World War III, and very soon. Sometimes I hear the term, and it's an ancient term in a way, of the Middle East is like a pressure cooker. Now, some of you young people may not have even ever seen a pressure cooker, but as a child, I remember them well. Because to me, through a child's eyes, when Grandma put that pressure cooker on, it had water in it, and it had jars of, say, beans in there. And she screwed that lid on and then turned the heat up. And somehow, even in my child's mind, I envisioned a great deal of pressure building up there because it was called what? A pressure cooker. And they had this little valve up on top that would let off if there, there was too much pressure. 
But in my mind, I thought, what if that thing malfunctions? What if something happens to that and it doesn't let off that excess pressure? And in my grandmother's house, she had the kitchen and a fairly large dining room and then a big opening into the living room. So I would stand kind of back at the end of the dining room going into the living room and contemplate the situation. And I thought if there's a malfunction somewhere, there's going to be glass and beans and grandma all over the kitchen. (laughs) A child's eyes. But those pressures were there, and if they had not been relieved or had not been controlled, something bad was going to happen. And that's pretty much what we face in the world today. If something goes a little askew, if something malfunctions, if something happens here or there as a catalyst with the pressures that have built up, there will be a tremendous explosion. Now, I think I want to start this back in Isaiah because there is a build-up there that has to do, I think, with the international situation, but it also has to do with you and me sitting here. And I am starting this series there because I think we grasp, at least to some degree, what is happening. We have all heard the Minor Prophets series in which I think it was clearly shown through Scripture that there is an application in prophecy, not only the Minor Prophets, but even the Major Prophets. There is an application there that fits spiritual Israel and spiritual Judah, the church. And there is a bigger, in that sense, in terms of numbers and a worldwide conflict, that represents the international scene with the leaders of Israel and Judah at the forefront. So, the basis of that series was that the events happened to the church first, the problems, the captivity, the spiritual famine, and so on, and then they began to affect physical Israel and the whole world, as written. So, I want to show you a prophecy, or go back to a prophecy, that we have looked at in the past... But as things have heated up in the world, and particularly now in the Middle East, I think we need to take another look at it and see the international value of that prophecy as well as the value of the prophecy to us in the church. Now, there is a strange dichotomy or difference that makes it difficult to understand everything. We see a lot of things happening. We see things happening in the church. We see them happening in the world. And we have come to realize, I believe, that there is a mirror image situation where the things in the Middle East 
are only a mirror image of things that have happened in the past and will happen right here in the United States and with us. And it is very difficult to put the whole story together because you're dealing with two different fulfillments of the same things. Now, I went to a three-ring circus one time as a child. I think it was a Barnum and Bailey, or maybe it was an offshoot of Barnum and Bailey, because I think Barnum and Bailey was essentially around before, if you believe that, before I was. Uh, but some type of an offshoot of it at, at any rate. And they had three rings going at the same time. And I was interested in the lion taming, and I was interested in the lady standing on the elephant, and I was interested in the guy over here jumping up and down off the horse. And I wanted to watch them all, but it became a blur, trying to keep up with all that action, where it was all coming from, and then, you know, what was coming next in this ring and this ring. And they made it that way on purpose, to keep you excited and and interested, not just watching one act and then another act. But when they were going at the same time, it was even more exciting and harder to follow and understand. So what we have going on in the world today and in the church becomes hard to put together, and that's why I said prophecy and history fitting some strange pieces together, because they do seem strange. And some of the things that we are learning will be strange to the whole world. Let's go back to the beginnings of the book of Isaiah. Because Syria is in the headlines today. You turn on the news and you're going to see people being killed and rebels fighting the government in Syria. And a lot has been said about it. And it appears that NATO and the United States are indeed funding the rebels from everything I see and read, uh, against Assad and the, Assyri the Syrians. So there's some strange stuff going on that is increasing the pressure in the Arab world and in the world as a whole. Now he opens the book of Isaiah talking about a vision of Isaiah concerning Judah and Jerusalem or both houses of Israel. They were split, uh, ten tribes staying together, known as Israel, their capital being in Samaria, and those tribes who were with Judah, Levi and uh, Benjamin, I guess it was, or Simeon, uh, were known as the house of Judah. So he combines this prophecy about both houses of Israel, Judah and Jerusalem, the capital of uh, Israel being Samaria and the capital of Judah being Jerusalem. And he is not happy with a lot of things, including the way they worshipped, the new moons, the feasts, the various things as he goes on down. He talked about how there was lying and then murder before we get to the end of chapter uh, 1. It says, And now murderers. And I have expressed before that I felt Herbert Armstrong was murdered. Uh, I think there's enough evidence to, to support at least a very good case for that. And this is one of them. But eyewitnesses who heard and 
were aware of what was going on that night may have been involved. But he says down in chapter 2, verse 2, it shall come to pass in the last days. So this is not a prophecy just for that day, though there are some historical references in here about that day. But the overall message that Isaiah is delivering is what will occur in the last days. And that is where we find ourselves today, is in a world that is about to blow up into a conflagration that will be a bigger war than has ever been experienced on earth. And Christ himself said while he was here that when this occurs... If he did not cut some things short, there would be no flesh saved alive. Now, I find it interesting that in that statement, he also included the church. So he was describing an international, global, worldwide situation that would occur in the last days that would end up with all human beings dead unless he intervened. And he said he would intervene, why? For the elect's sake, or for the church. He said, fear not, little flock. So within that statement encompasses the international world and a statement about a little group of people known as the church. I don't think I ever really looked at his statement with that particular view in mind. I knew it had to do with people dying, and if it weren't for the church, everybody would die. But his statement... says a lot about what I have just been talking about. In other words, it is not wrong to interpret these prophecies back here, both in terms of the international community and the church. Christ did it himself. So when we get a little bit further along here in Isaiah, we're going to see a specific prophecy which deals first with the international situation, nations and wars, and specifically with the church. Now, isn't that strange? No, I don't think it's strange at all, because God is dealing with physical Israel and spiritual Israel. He's dealing with the whole world and those who come against the church, which ultimately will be the whole world. So when you consider... Prophecy, you have to consider the whole worldwide view. And what is happening in the world, then, has to match what the Bible says to the T. Does it not? Otherwise, what God wrote doesn't mean anything. And that's really what the Protestant world and their prophets are saying, is that well, this major nation's here and that major nation's there, but that doesn't fit the Bible. All the Bible's talking about is the little land of Israel in the Middle East and the Muslims. 
So they have to confine it to that since their view of Israel is that limited. Now when you piece history together, you have the same problem. There have been movements of continents, I mean geographically and physically, in the days of Peleg, I think. There have been movements of whole peoples from continent to continent, and not just a one-time movement, but back and forth. And we will get into some of that and prove that. Now, how all those peoples moved and where they moved and when they moved back and forth is a very difficult thing to figure out because the, pro- the histories of mankind are very limited in their view and they're very limited in their knowledge. And with the book burnings that occurred in the early Middle Ages or Dark Ages, most of the history that was understood was destroyed. Therefore, they are picking through little pieces here and there trying to fit it all together, but they have a great bias involved. That is, they have their view of how all things happened, and they will not allow any information to come to the forefront that would change that picture in any way materially. So you can show these movements, and they will deny it. And they'll stick to their Columbus story. Because they don't want their boat rocked. Now, if I say they are biased, we also are very biased. We need to understand that. Now, how do I mean that? I am highly biased by this book. To me, it is the only book on earth that I can trust. And even then, I have to be careful here and there to be sure that the translation is correct. By and large, it is, but it is not, in that sense, absolutely perfect. Just the very point of changing a book from one language to another, a certain amount is lost in translation. Even in English, you can read something written back in the 16s and 1700s in the perfect English of the day and try to read that today and understand it. And you will have problems because the language is fluid. It changes. And there are words, like in the New Testament, which was uh, translated in 1611 from Greek texts, We have the word conversation many times in the New Testament. And the modern word that is equivalent would be conduct. So it sounds like talking, but no, it's what people are doing. It's conduct. That word changed from 1611 to today. So we have to read what was written in 1611 in modern English. Now, I don't use a translation that has been made in the last 50 or 60 or 70 years uh, as a study Bible or that I preach out of. I use the old King James English translation from 1611. 
And you will notice that I change the these and the thys as I read it, just automatically to you and us and the modern terminology in our English language. Now, that is not perverting the Scripture. It's simply updating uh, the English without losing, hopefully, the meaning. And you can do that. But there are a few places here and there where we have to check the original Greek manuscripts or Hebrew manuscripts to be sure that the way they translated it was correct in terms of what God originally intended. So there is a certain amount of that, and it creates a certain amount of confusion. And there are a few verses, not very many, but a few, that were actually added, despite the warning in Revelation 22, not to add to or take from this book. But apart from these small things, God did not keep it in the ancient Hebrew and yet give us the language of tongues or the original Greek so that we might understand all those words in their original meaning. But he has given us a book that is essentially correct. And despite a word here and there that might throw you off, the context is the biggest indicator because there's not much been done to it that would change the context. A few words here and there that could be better understood or clarified. But this is the book that I trust. Therefore, anything I say is going to have a built-in bias. Okay? So if they're biased... They would take that as a negative. And I look upon it as a negative because their bias is not a true bias. It's a false one. Where ours is based on truth and is a correct bias. So, what we see happening in the world and what has transpired in the past in the world has to fit the history of this book, and it also has to fit the verses that show a future of the world. If it does not, there has to be error involved. And there are people on the earth who will argue that what they see and what they are finding in archaeology and various other studies make the book, the Bible, a false witness. Because they say it does not match what they are finding where they are finding it. So, they don't trust the Bible as a historical book. And their leading prophets or readers and interpreters of prophecy also can't seem to make what is happening in the world fit this book. When the major player in world politics today, they say they cannot even find in the Bible, you know they've got a problem. <laughs> it has to be a problem. Because God says, through Isaiah, that the things Isaiah, for one person here, one prophet, are writing, have to do with the last days that the mountain of the Eternal's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills 
and all nations shall flow to it, people will begin to look to where God is working, and their attention will go there, and some will flow there. And many people shall go and say, Come you, and let us go up to the mountain of the Eternal, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Eternal from Jerusalem. And then he says, Peace will come, beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks and so on. Now, he says the beginnings of peace in Haggai 2.9 will come under Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses and the remnant of the church. And then, once it is established there, Christ will return, and then it will go around the world. So what starts as a movement by a tiny group of people will then morph into a worldwide international peace for all peoples and all nations. It begins in the last days, but it expands until it takes over the whole world. So, what Christ said is that World War III will become so violent that all people will be killed except for the righteousness of a few. Those few would find peace and safety, and then Christ would come in his glory, and it would spread to the whole world. Now that is the overview of what is going to happen. The details of it are written throughout the prophecies. And in, to understand the prophecies, we have to also understand a certain amount of history. Now, some of us may have been interested in history in school, and some of us could have cared less. We're more interested maybe in P.E. or, uh, you know, something else like that. But history can be pretty dry as presented by the world. Now, if we understand the Bible and true history, I think it is going to become very exciting. If we understand true prophecy, it will become very exciting. Because we understand God's truth. And we can be that few from which peace will encircle the globe. So indeed, as we look at these, we see that it has an application to a few people, but it has an application to the whole world. And therefore, as we read the pages of the Bible, we have to sort out the duality of that and how a particular prophecy applies to a few people and how it applies to the whole world. And it can have both applications. In some cases, it's talking more on an international level. In some cases, it's talking directly to the virgin bride of Christ. And those are a little easier to sort out. It's when it's talking about both in a sequence that it becomes a bit more difficult. But you've got to know the identities of people on the earth in order to get this sorted out. Just as you need to know the identity 
of who Israel is in the world, peoples again, and also who has the truth of God. Because the truth is what will set us free and bring us peace. And he has said that Satan has deceived the whole world, and therefore it is only a very few whose minds he opens to understand. And it isn't necessarily the smart ones that figure it out. He said, I will open the minds of a few weak and base, so that they who are not scholars, they who are not historians, they who are not great understanders of prophecy, or even the Bible, will come to understand and will know what to do and will be juxtaposed against the rest of the world deceived by Satan who will do the final work of God. Isaiah says that right here. So he says, O house of Jacob, come you and let us walk in the light of the eternal. Therefore you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they be replenished from the east and are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they please themselves and the children of stranger. Their land also is full of silver and gold, neither is there any end of their treasures. Speaking of the people of Israel. Now, if this is about Israel in the end days, we need to start out, first of all, by looking for a land full of silver and gold and treasure beyond imagination. To look to and find the greatest nation, the richest nation, the nation with the highest standard of living on earth, wouldn't you say? Isn't that what that's saying? Their land is full of horses, that is, for military use. Neither is there any end of their chariots, again, military use. So, if we are looking for Israel, we had better find a nation that has the greatest treasures and the greatest military in the end time, the last days, as he said. Their land also is full of idols, a land that no longer worships the true God, but is full of all other kinds of gods. They worship the work of their own hands, their industry, their materialism, their houses, castles, their infrastructure, all those things that make up the great nation of Israel in the last days. And the mean man bows down, and the great man humbles himself, Therefore, forgive them not. And he tells them then to enter into the rock and hide in the dust for fear of the eternal and for the glory of his majesty. So the most powerful nation on the earth then will be Israel in the last days. And God tells them, destruction is ahead of you. So he says, what's starting if people will obey God is going to cover the earth but in the meantime, we got problems, boys and girls, and they got to be solved. And it is going to come with great danger and great destruction. 
The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the eternal alone shall be exalted in that day. And he says, through Ezekiel, over and over and over again, and they shall know that I am the eternal. And Ezekiel describes many of the horrors that Isaiah is beginning to introduce here that are going to happen to the land of Israel and Judah. He goes on to say they'll hide in the caves and the holes in the rock for fear of God and that they'll cast their idols of silver and idols of gold and all these things that we have into the street. Zephaniah echoes that and so do many other prophecies that there is a great financial collapse coming. And now we have people out in the world who don't understand the Bible who are saying that that collapse is coming depending on which one you talk to within the next month or two some say by January, some say by March, some say by 2013 sometime. But many, many of them are beginning to say it's all over for the United States of America. Despite our standing in the world today. And then he talks about the moral issues within the country, how bad Israel will get. I won't go into all that. Chapter 4, and in that day, seven women, churches, there are seven churches in the book of Revelation, will take hold of one man, Zerubbabel, of Zechariah 3 and 4 and 6. And that day shall the branch of the eternal be beautiful and glorious, says there in Zechariah 3, that God is going to yet again choose Jerusalem, that there will be animosity and Satan will try to stop it. But it says a little further in the chapter that God will reveal his servant, the branch. The branch of the eternal. Isaiah talks about it here in chapter 4. And how the church, the seven women, will take hold of him. And he will build a temple. Not by might, not by strength, not by power, but by the Spirit of God. So that is being introduced here as well. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Not Israel as a whole, but only those who escape. And it shall come to pass that he that is left, he who remains, he who survives in Zion, and he that remains in Jerusalem, <coughs> shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. When the eternal shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Trial, trouble, persecution, difficulty. God is wiping and washing us to be clean. Did not Christ say that he would present his bride without spot and without wrinkle? And that takes an awful lot to get rid of those things. We have a nation physically obsessed with getting rid of spots and wrinkles and trying to look young again in all kinds of creams and powders and pills and various things that will turn you into a 20-year-old even though you're walking on a cane. At least that's what the advertisers say. But only Christ, through what he will put us through, can make us that way. And that's the way he's doing it. And the Eternal will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies 
a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense, or a protection, protection. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. We find the same language in Zechariah, where he says he will be a wall of fire and a defense around Jerusalem and the villages that constitute it. He also says here that he will wash away her sins. Zechariah 3 says that the sins of the land will be forgiven in one day. It says they'll be wiped away as a cloud in Isaiah 44. Very quickly. All these prophecies tie together with the people of God and with the overall nation of Israel whose sins will be wiped away once Christ returns. Meantime, chapter 5 says people will be kicked out of their homes. They'll lose their houses, their fancy, wide houses they've lived in. This is repeated in Zephaniah and other scriptures. What do we see in America today? A, we see the church of God, which was based initially and predominantly in America, losing its congregations, losing its church homes, if you will, and that is almost finished. And on the heels of that, to prove the viewpoint that I took in the Minor Prophets and understanding them is true, We see subsequent to the houses, the church houses being destroyed, now people are physically being moved out of their houses by the hundreds of thousands. And even though they have now said that this new quantitative easing or printing of money will be to uphold the mortgage situation and help people retain their homes, we know... It will be like the first two times given to the big banks and that they will not lend it to the people for homes. I talked to a guy just yesterday when I uh, got scalped at the little barber shop in Kanab. I I say that so people, my wife already said people blame your haircut on me because she always cuts my hair. But the fellow that gave me the haircut said that uh, there was a house appraised for 450000 in Kanab just a few years ago. He made an offer to a bank the other day who had repoed it of 125000 And the bank accepted the offer. But now he can't find anybody that will loan him the money. And he has plenty of equity in other, profits, in, in other properties. He has the wherewithal. He just can't find anybody that will loan him 125000 against a house that's still worth a whole lot more than that, even though its value has dropped a great deal in the last four or five years. So where's all that money <clears throat> that they gave to the banks that they said would be loaned out to the people? They're not loaning it to the people. That's why he's having trouble. I mean, you'd think you could take that in and say, man, here's a property that's way undervalued. Please loan me the money so I can buy it. You'd think the banks would jump through hoops to do that. They did a few years ago. You didn't even have to have a hoop for them. Not anymore. 
people are being kicked out of their homes. Just by the economic circumstance. And soon this nation will be attacked, its people taken captivity out of their homes. And as Isaiah 5 clearly shows, America, Americans, will lose their homes. It's happening. I won't go through the whole prophecy. We've gone through it before. I just want to make this reference. Chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Eternal sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now this is reminiscent of Ezekiel uh, 5, no, 6, I guess. A couple of chapters there in the beginnings of Ezekiel that show... uh, a portable throne of Christ with the cherubims and so on there. You're familiar with it. (coughs) But Isaiah saw also the same type of vision here. (coughs) Ezekiel was an end-time prophecy, and it shows Christ moving about and being mobile, not sitting on a throne in the north in heaven. So this portable throne had the seraphim with six wings covering their face, and so on, and it flew. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the eternal of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now that obviously is a prophecy because it hadn't happened in that day, and the whole earth is not in the glory of God today. It's just not. So this is for time yet in the future. But the near future, because we see chapter 5 having already occurred in the church, and as we speak today, occurring in our land. So that means that when you get into chapter 6, and it shows Christ moving about in this portable throne, that it is in the time frame of what we see in chapter 5 which is ongoing this very day. So this isn't something we're reading 400 years ago or a thousand years ago. This is something we're reading today that applies to today. People 400 years ago read it, thought about it, and said, how does this apply to my life? It didn't. Today, it does. Notice it says, the whole earth is full of his glory, and this is the beginnings of it, see. The earth isn't full of his glory, but that's where it's going. This whole prophecy is going to wind up with the world in the glory of God. But a lot of bad stuff has to happen before that occurs. The posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Isaiah, Woe is me! This scared him. For I am coming apart because I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah saw in this vision the glory of God and His holiness. And he said, Oh my, I can't stand this. I'm coming apart because I am not holy and I am unclean in the things that I say and those things that come out of my mouth. 
and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, Isaiah was a prophet of God, and he said, I have problems, and so do the people that are around me. We find a character like that in Zechariah 3, who it says was filthy. And the people around him were filthy as well, and their sins had to be removed in one day. So these prophecies all tie together, not just of a prophet in the long, long ago having a dream or a vision, but they fit in the last days as Isaiah introduced this. Then flew one of the seraphim to me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. Now remember we read just a few moments ago that God would cleanse us with the spirit of burning and of fire, of tribulation and trial, in other words. But he would purify. So he's taking fire from Christ's chariot, or from the altar of God, and applying it to Isaiah's lips. So the seraphim flew to me, having a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, very hot. And he laid it upon my mouth. So God applied heat and pressure, didn't he? That's what this is symbolic of. Not just of burning lips, but of what it takes to cleanse. He said, Lo, this has touched your lips. You, are going, you have gone through many difficulties. Remember some of the things that Isaiah went through? He had to run around naked for years. What Ezekiel went through, laying on his side and then laying on the other side over a year. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Now, why? Why was this done? Because God had a purpose. He had a work that needed to be done, just as he has a work that needs to be done today. And that's why this was written for today, the last days. I heard the voice of the Eternal saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Now imagine God today having a work to do, and he says, Who will I send? Who will go to represent the Father and the Son and holiness? Now as he looks upon this earth and tries to find someone, the prospects are pretty bleak, aren't they? So he says, Who will I find? Who will go? Then said Isaiah, Here am I, send me. Now, you're having trouble finding anybody, I'll do it. But remember, Isaiah had just been cleansed with the fire from the altar. Therefore, he could say, well, send me. On my own, I'm a man coming apart with unclean lips. But if you're looking for somebody, I'm going. And he said, go. And tell this people. So God accepted that, in other words, and says, All right, I'll send you. Go talk to this people. And here's what you're to tell them Hear you indeed. You'll hear it, but you won't get it. 
They'll listen, but they won't understand. And see you indeed, but perceive not. They won't understand. They won't get it. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, <coughs> and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Just as Christ spoke in parables, so that they might not see, they might not understand, and therefore judgment would not have to come upon them, and eternal death, because they were converted but wouldn't follow. They'll have their chance in the great white throne judgment, in other words. So God was not getting rid of them. He was just putting off their judgment for several thousand years. Now he's saying in this end time that there are not very many if you give this message from God that are going to get it, they're not going to understand it, they don't want to hear it, Then said I, that was a pretty heavy statement God made. It, you know, go talk to them, but it ain't going to do you any good. So Isaiah says, well, how long is this going to last? How long, O Lord? Remember, Habakkuk had the same feeling. How long, O Lord, before all these things come to pass? And then he decided he better shut up and sit on his watch and wait for God. Okay, God answered. And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, as per chapter 5, and the land be utterly desolate. Now, viewed from a church standpoint, that is almost accomplished. Viewed from a national standpoint, it is quickly coming to pass. We're already being kicked out of our homes, and the land has not yet, however, been invaded and the inhabitants killed and taken captive. But it's on its way. That's how long this will last. So the process is going as we sit here today. And in addition to that, verse 12, And the Lord have removed men far away, that is, taken them back into captivity, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Forsaking God. A falling away, if you will. Verse 13. But yet in it shall be a tenth. And it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. So God is going to have a people to begin again. To start over with. Now we read that the other day again in Zechariah 2, where God said, I will have my inheritance, I will have my tenth, I will have my tithe of the people. Now we have seen in Haggai, that a remnant, which is in biblical language, a tenth, will return to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses, to begin a work all again. So this is what this is talking about. 
A tenth of the church will return to do a work yet. And in the millennium, a tenth of physical Israel will return to their land to begin a work of God that will then go around the world. So this remnant of the church is a type of what will eventually be an international situation. So we see, as in my opening comments, that we're dealing with both a small fulfillment on a spiritual level, and we're dealing with a huge fulfillment on a physical level that also includes the spiritual. Because restoring the earth to what it is today without the spiritual element wouldn't be an upgrade. So it has to have the rulership of God. Now, with that (laughs) brief introduction, what time is it? I want to get into chapter 7, which we have again gone through before. But it is a prophecy concerning Judah and also Syria and the king of Israel, or the king specifically of Ephraim. Now it is in the context of what we have just read about the last days and about the spiritual houses being destroyed and the physical houses being destroyed. So this is something to take note of today. And ironically, as I said in the beginning, we have a situation where we have a Middle East powder keg or pressure cooker, and we have a nation beginning to fall apart right here, and the American empire is doomed. Anybody who follows the projections and the attitude of the world and where our economy is headed can only conclude, if they're honest, that we have had it. Okay? Now let's look into this a little bit because this has a bearing on the whole international situation in today's world. It is not just a prophecy of the past. Now, there is a historical fulfillment that occurred, but these things occur again. So, for him to write it means that it is a future fulfillment, not just history. It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So, the king of Judah here, whatever the name, that Rezin, the king of Syria... We would put in there Assad today instead of Rezin. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So what you have here is a conspiracy of Syria and the leader of Ephraim to destroy Judah. We have in the world today the king of Syria, along with the rest of the Arabs, and this may be a type in that sense of the whole Muslim world, not just Syria per se. But at the moment, today, as we speak, Syria is the hot button that could very easily lead to a bigger war in the Middle East, including all the Arabs and the Iranians 
in particular. And we have the current leader of Ephraim. I think we've proved that in other sermons to be the United States, not Britain. And it's happening here, not in England today. The current leader of the tribe of Ephraim, and it represents the rest of Israel. And remember in Jeremiah 31, God said, I have changed the firstborn to Ephraim. Calls Ephraim his firstborn. The one with the greatest inheritance of all. So the leader of all Israel and the nation of the United States today, the leader of Ephraim then, is in league with Syria or the Arabs for the destruction of Judah. Now here we have the international situation. Not of spiritual Judah here or the church, but on an international level. And indeed, the leader of this country is very favorably disposed to the Arab world and is, by his own words, pretty much against Judah and is trying to ignore the nation of Israel as we speak. What is going on behind the scenes? I do not know for sure. But I know that this is a right now prophecy and that the conditions that he is beginning to describe here then have to be occurring today. And as we talk about it, that is exactly the way it's playing out with the land of Judah and the Middle East, with Syria representing the Arabs, and with the leader of Ephraim. Well, they went up against Judah to prevail against it, but could not. <clears throat> and it was told the house of David, that is the other tribes, not Judah, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. He said, house of David, whether you understand it or not, there's somebody in Ephraim who is conspiring against Judah, with Syria against Judah. And his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. He got nervous, began to sway back and forth like a tree in the wind. That's scary stuff. Then said the eternal Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, which means the remnant shall return, that was the name of the guy, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Now God, with his prophets, told them at various times, it isn't mentioned here, what to name their children. Remember Hosea had to name his children a certain thing because of the way prophecy would work out. Uh, Isaiah, a little later on in the next chapter, is told to conceive another child and he was to have a certain name. We'll get there. And I suspect that that was the case here. That when Shear Jasub was born, God had told Isaiah what to name this son. 
the remnant shall return. In other words, there's going to be great destruction, but out of it a remnant will come. So it's a positive thing in a negative environment. Uh, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool and the highway of the fuller's field. And say to him, take heed and be quiet. Fear not. <clears throat> Tell your son not to fear. Neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, these troublemakers, for the fierce anger of Rezin of Syria and of the son of Remaliah, that is the leader of Ephraim, because Syria... Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against Judah. I'm putting the words in there because it's a little hard to follow. Here's what they said. Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. In other words, let's have a coup, and let's have a regime change. Those are words we use today. America uses them quite frequently as they go into a nation to change the leadership to the way we want it. So that was going on back then, and it is going on today. And all those people are in confederacy to destroy Judah, and even our leader is among them. Now, if I dare say our leadership is trying to betray Judah... Let us also understand that in Isaiah 50 and 51, our leader is said to shake hands to betray us, this nation, Babylon, spiritual Babylon. We did a whole series of sermons showing that America is the only nation that could represent modern Babylon, the leader of the world today. So many, many scriptures, and it was a fairly long series. So I'm not going to go into all that. It's there for review on the website if you want to go back and listen to that. Or if you're new to us or new to this uh, viewpoint, uh, that series is there. So, we know our leader, and it has not just been one, but this has been something that's been ongoing for quite some time. At least as far back as, uh, <laughs> name won't come to me, one Rockefeller, the president, back in the Depression. Everybody knows it but me, Roosevelt. And it has continued through Clinton, it's continued through Bush, it's continued through Obama, and it will continue through Obama or Romney or whoever there is. It does not matter whether they're Democrat or Republican, they're all the same kind of rats. They all answer to the same puppeteers. They're one and the same. This two-party system is a joke because they're all involved in and led by the cartel that is trying to rule the world, which the Bible says will occur. Okay? So I'm not trying to put down any particular man. This is something that has been a work in progress. And all those men I just named as leaders of this nation, both Bushes, Republicans, and Clinton, and now Obama, and whoever follows, have been betraying America, and that's becoming very obvious. They don't care about Americans. Is your check in the mail? Or are all those billions going to the bankers again? 
I would love for any of you to report now that QE3 is upon us, uh, how big your check is. Don't hold your breath. They're selling us down the river. And that's what this is talking about. Now it's talking about Judah here in particular, and there's a specific prophecy here about Ephraim, so let's get to that. <clears throat> but anyway, <clears throat> they had this conspiracy to destroy Judah. Thus says the eternal God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. It isn't going to happen. So whatever deal they've made between the Arabs and the American leaders, or whatever, that particular thing is not going to happen. Here's what will happen, God says. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, that was the king, and within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. So from when God started this prophecy, and I don't know when that was, but in a span of 65 years, this nation, Ephraim, America today, with its Babylonian leaders, will not exist as a people. It will be taken into captivity. It will be ruined. Its people will be taken out of their homes and made slaves overseas. That has got to happen real soon. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established, or, as my margin says, you are not stable. You don't have good understanding. You're wishy-washy. You don't know what's going on, in other words. So whatever is being cooked up at the moment, and has been for some time, will not happen. Now, as an interesting thing, I've reflected upon various starting dates for this prophecy because obviously we're interested in when 65 years is up. Now consider that this is a prophecy where there are people trying to destroy Judah or on an international basis that nation of Israel today. Israel was formed officially on May 15th of 1948. The very next day, a, an assemblage of Arab nations, including Syria, attacked because they did not want Judah established or Israel established as a nation in the land of the Arabs. And there has been war ongoing off and on ever since. May 16th of 1948, when the first attack occurred. Sixty-five years later is May 15th, 2013. Will America be destroyed before May 15th of 2013? 
and this conspiracy that has been against Judah from the very day of its formation, this particular conspiracy be ended because Ephraim can no longer conspire with the Arabs to destroy Judah. I do not know that, and I'm not trying to set a date for our destruction. But, I think the comments at the beginning of this sermon would serve to show that what is being shown on TV and on the internet means that America is in severe decline and our enemies will soon be picking our bones. Now, whether it will happen that fast or whether that is the date of the beginning of this prophecy, I do not know. I'm not predicting that. I'm just giving you a for instance. I think I learned a long, long time ago, even as a child in an early ministry, or early time in the ministry when I was in my 20s, that I learned not to set dates. We learned from 1972 and 75 and 1982 and various other things that it is a fool's folly to set dates. I'm merely presenting some possibilities. <coughs> Maybe that date of the starting of this prophecy was later than that. Maybe that will become obvious at some point. I do not know that. I'm just saying it's ironic and it's interesting and scary. Moreover, the Eternal spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask you a sign of the Eternal your God. That was the king of Judah. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Eternal. Now, what God is saying here is that this prophecy about Syria and Ephraim and Judah is a sign. What is a sign for? It's to tell you something. This is exit 23, or, you know, whatever. Stay at the Holiday Inn is a sign on a billboard. A sign is there, then, to impart information that might be of value to you. Somebody thinks. In this case, God thinks it might be of value to you. Now, at some point, you need to be able to read the sign, if you're going to get anything from it. Now, God draws this down and says, all right, that sign might be difficult for you to read. And I'm saying as I stand here, I don't know for sure what it means. Because I don't know if that was the start date, so I don't know for sure that's the end date, okay? Have I covered my behind enough? So God says, maybe you need another sign. And Ahaz says, I know history, and I know not to ask for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. I'm not going to put that on God. Well, God is adamant here. <laughs> he says, I'm going to give you a sign whether you ask for it or not. Okay? Moreover, the Eternal spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask you a sign of the eternal your God, ask it either in the depth or in the height. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the eternal. And he said, Hear you now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? God says, Listen, I'm trying to tell you something here. Are you going to pay attention? Or are you going to just make me weary of trying to get across to anybody, including the king of Judah, what the truth is. 
Therefore, the Eternal Himself shall give you a sign. Now, to me it is quite interesting the type of sign that he then ensues to give. The first had been on the international scene between countries. This has to do with something entirely different. And it then has a limited audience or limited amount of people who could possibly understand. Now, there are people on this earth who are smart who might be able to read what we saw here about Judah and Ephraim and Syria. They might be able to figure that out because they're smart in geopolitics and they see what's happening on this earth this very day when people are being murdered in Syria and the Arab world is coming alive with violence and our country is trying to side, or at least our leadership, with the Arabs as much as is possible without getting drugged through the streets. They might figure that out. But this sign we are about to encounter is one that only a very, very few people on this earth could even begin to understand. And you are among them. (coughs) Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Verse 14. Behold, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now we go to Matthew chapter 5, I believe. And Christ is conceived and God told them, call his name in Hebrew, Yahshua or Joshua or in the Greek, Jesus. Iosis, Jesus, translated into English. But they, sometime in the future implied, shall call his name Emmanuel. So, for the time being, God said, call him, in the Hebrew, a name that meant God is salvation. Jesus, Joshua, Iosis however you want to pronounce it in whatever language. Emmanuel means God with us. So he says, Christ came the first time, named God is salvation. And did he not come? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that all who trust in him shall not perish, but be given eternal life. That's why he came the first time. That's why he was called God is salvation, because that is what he was opening up to the world. The name fit him. Even as we have a certain name today. And if you get out a little book, it will tell you what your name is supposed to mean. Most of us, probably as children, have done it. But God tells us in Revelation 2 and 3, He will give each of us a new name that reflects what we will have become. Even as Abram 
was renamed Abraham, and Jacob was renamed Israel for what he became. So, at some time in the future, Christ would come and dwell with a certain people. Zechariah 2, in the time of the two witnesses again, and the remnant of the church, says he will come and dwell with them in Zion at Jerusalem. So, therefore, those people to whom he comes to dwell before the millennium, before his glorious return, will be in the true Zion in Jerusalem, wherever that may be, and he will dwell with them, and his name will then be to them Emmanuel, God with us. Not general, God is salvation, but salvation has come to dwell with us. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Butter and honey are both very nutritious, healthful foods. Be one of them dairy or not today. But he would eat of the good. And Christ did eat of the good. And he is going to return to those whom he has accounted as good. As forgiven. Their sins forgiven in one day, Zechariah 3. It's all talking about the end time. Now he puts a different time limit on this. Before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. That is a fluid term. Some children get the picture earlier, some a little later. It could be in the first few years of life at least. It isn't determined exactly. The other one is a specific timed prophecy within 65 years. So from a certain date to a certain date, this has to happen before that. Now this one's a little ambiguous. Different children learn at different times. But soon, okay, Before the child has this all figured out, the land that you abhor shall be forsaken of both her kings. Now we've been talking here about Ephraim being destroyed, so that thought is continued. He says, this prophecy about Emmanuel is still tied in to the prophecy, the first sign. The first sign and the second sign are tied together. Now, Isaiah says, or talk, I think it's Isaiah, talks about those who sigh and cry for the abominations we see in our own land. So we abhor what is going on in America. The lying, the cheating, the fraud, the misuse, the abuse, the murder, the abortion. All the things that are wrong in this land we abhor. We abhor the society around us, do we not? Because it is contrary to God's way. And it affects us, and we're trying to live right, but we're being pulled the wrong way. All these things. This is the land that we abhor the most. I don't abhor China. I don't abhor South Africa. 
I abhor what's affecting me and what is around me, where I live. Where is the church? Most of it is in this land. So when he speaks of the virgin who will conceive and bring forth Emmanuel, he's talking about the church of God who has, which has the truth, and it is in this land, because as a matter of fact, most of the church was in America. Pretty good number in Canada, a brother. And the next biggest number in Britain, also a brother, tribes of Israel. But most of it, by far, the majority in this land. So now when he's referring to this virgin daughter, doesn't it have to be where the virgin daughter is? Doesn't it have to be here? I think it does. I think the context requires that. This land will lose both her leaders. Now the church, the virgin daughter, has lost both her leaders. First, Herbert Armstrong, probably murdered. Micah 4 says our king is dead and our counselor is perished. And Joe Koch, who made a brag about God and him and then died of cancer shortly thereafter. So, if you draw this down to the church, both its leaders will be forsaken. But I don't think it's talking in a larger sense about that. I think it's talking about the virgin, the remnant of the church, within an international world of Satan. Because it goes on to describe the destruction of this country. So the first sign that Ephraim will be destroyed has interspersed within it a message to the virgin daughter of Israel, the church. And then it expands again to the destruction of the nation, physical Israel. Now, that being the case, who on this earth, within the church, understands Matthew 5 and Isaiah 7? Who knows about Emmanuel? Who has put together both names of Christ, who was to be Jesus for a while, and Emmanuel later? He's talking about a sign that occurs in the last days to the church. I believe it was the feast in 2006, if my memory serves, that we had a couple guys come to the feast, Feast of Tabernacles, interesting time and proposed to me that we should call Christ Emmanuel instead of Jesus and showed me that prophecy in Matthew 5 and here in Isaiah 7 and I said that makes sense and we shortly thereafter began to use Emmanuel now I'm not freaked to death to hear Jesus or Joshua or however somebody thinks it ought to be pronounced, used. In fact, occasionally, 
if I'm in the presence of people who don't understand what we do, as in perhaps funerals or uh, situations where there are unconverted people within hearing or whatever, uh, I will even close a prayer over a meal as I did a time or two or three and say in Jesus' name. That was to be used. There was nothing wrong with that. But we've upgraded. So I don't use it much anymore. I only use it in the context of someone who might be offended or not understand what in the world is he talking about. So I concede to them that, and I don't have a problem with that. The people who brought it to us think that the name Jesus is a name for Satan. And I don't go that far. I don't believe that. I believe that indeed he was to be called Jesus or Joshua or Eosis or whatever translation. But as I said in the sermon about Emmanuel, there is so much confusion on how you should say the one they call Jesus that it's so simple. Emmanuel's the same in all languages. You don't have to worry about that. Not only that, it's an, I, I would rather be living under, and I hope we soon are, God is with us, then God is salvation. He's both. But this is more specific, Emmanuel. So far, those two people who brought that knowledge went their way. I heard from them for a while, and I haven't heard from them now in several years. But we as an organization, as a group, as a church of God, began to use that. Is there someone else somewhere that uses it? I do not know of any. If you do find some, I would like to know about it. But insofar as my knowledge today goes, we're the only ones as a group that are using Emmanuel. Now, was that brought as a sign to us then? If it hasn't been brought to anyone else, then we are the ones that it has to be talking about. It couldn't be talking about somebody that doesn't know about it. It has to be talking about us. Unless there's someone else somewhere, some other group, that's doing the same thing. Now that's possible. But in my limited understanding of that, I have to go with the thought that we're the ones that this sign is directed to. And to me, that is very scary. That God expects us to follow through and be what we're supposed to be. Not because of might, not because of power, not because of greatness, not because of righteousness. Remember Isaiah, who represented this, said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm coming apart with sin. Same thing we see in Haggai and Zechariah. Particularly, I mean Zechariah. It's today. It's now. And it has to be referring to us, unless somebody can show me someone else, that's doing the things we're doing and has the understanding we have. So a great responsibility is being laid upon us here. 
and this whole international picture. And the first part of Isaiah 7 is right before the eyes of the world is an international development. And we are the only ones who understand the sign of verse 14 and 15 and 16. Other than those two who brought it here that I know of. The Eternal shall bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. So he takes it from an international conspiracy down to a church who is existent right as that conspiracy comes to pass. And then he says, there's something coming bigger than anything that has happened in history, and that is the king of Assyria is on his way. That is the context, that is the setting with which we approach this series of sermons. It has very much to do with history, with prophecy, with international geopolitics today, and with the Church of God as he is beginning to work with it today.